Hey, this is Tolly Wilkins of Captivate Church, and we're so glad you've joined us on our podcast today. This is one way that we can take our message from Baltimore all across the world. We pray that today encourages you, inspires you to become the man or woman that God's designed you to be. The only difference between the saint and the sinner is that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. This is a line in um, an 1893 play by Oscar Wilde. And uh, the line is often thrown out as kind of a, a simple, like, man, it's, it's so positive and it's so good. And in fact, when you go and you look in the actual Oscar Wilde's work, he wasn't trying to be proactive towards grace or love or humanity. He was actually kind of saying that um, being a sinner is fun. And, and, uh, but the, the statement actually still does ring completely true. When you look at it from those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior, when you look at it from our perspective and we look at that, we can honestly amen that and say, you know what, there is, there is an absolute truth um, held within that, that, that the only difference between the saint and the sinner is that every saint has a past. Every time you bump into somebody that, that knows God, walks with God, uh, if they're honest, they have something by which, they have a season by which, they have a sin by which they had to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And so every saint wasn't just born a saint, wasn't always a saint. A saint walking with God is simply somebody who has a past. And here's the challenging part for the church. Every sinner has a future. And we've got to ask ourselves inside the local church, do we believe that about people? Do we, when we interact with people week to week and month to month, year to year, do we genuinely interact with people believing that the God of all of the universe has a desire for them? to come and to know him, to surrender, to, to, to give up the vanity of trying to play God, lowercase g, and actually say, hey God, you're bigger and you're more awesome and you're more amazing than I'll ever be trying to play God. And so therefore, I surrender to you. Do you believe, do I believe, that the sinner that we see in our lives has a future? And truthfully, a lot of times, that single belief about what we believe about others what we believe about others outside of Christ, that belief alone, it changes us in terms of our compassion, in terms of our love, in terms of our willingness to give and extend the grace that's been given to us. And I've seen inside of the church that this saint-sinner phenomenon allows people to really mistreat others. And in fact, it should be the opposite. It should be that we realize so much so that I am that sinner that I'm going to give hope and love and a belief that God can rescue and redeem every sinner I bump into contact with. And then those of us that are honest would say, in Christ, I still have a Romans chapter 7 type of life. You could scribble that in your notes and go read it later. But essentially, it's, it's, it's Paul, man, that we're going to talk about today. He confesses, he says, in Christ, I still wrestle with the flesh. I still do things that I shouldn't do, and I know I shouldn't do them. And I have this war raging inside of me. And so as a saint, if you're honest, you'll say, I still have to battle the flesh, that sinner. And so it's that humility with which we understand the battle that rages inside of us, even if we are saved in Christ. It's with that humility that we can then approach the world and say, you know, I'm not there yet either. And I'm not perfect yet either. 
I'm perfected only in the spiritual sense that Jesus has redeemed my soul. But I'll tell you, Jesus is better than you playing God. Jesus is better than you trying to do it all on your own. Jesus is better than you trying to make a way. Jesus is better than you trying to, even in your good works, trying to earn God's favor. Jesus is better. And so the testimony of the Christian is not, I'm the saint, you're the sinner. The testimony is is that we're all sinners, but you can become a saint. And so I pray that we as the church of the living God called Captivate, I pray that we would redouble our efforts in 2020 and we would say, you know, it's time that I start thinking about some people that need to hear the gospel. It's time that I stop thinking about just my own needs and my own wants and my own life and my own prayer and they're talking about me, 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 me as if I'm preparing for an opera. I need to start thinking about the fact that there are sinners that can become saints in the 365 days ahead. And so I pray that as we look at this series, you and I each week, as we look at characters in the scriptures and see who God redeemed, that we would start to say, you know what, Lord, I need to get out of my Christian holy huddle and I need to make an intentional effort to see that the the sinner becomes the saint and that the saint inside of me is not, I don't look in the mirror every day and say, God, you're welcome. God, you're welcome. It's a good thing I'm on your team. Because unfortunately, I really believe that the longer we get into the, uh, the, the, the church culture, we can take on an era that just says, man, God's lucky to have me. I do, I do it all right, and here's what I do. Here's all my effort. Here's how, I, here's how I work its way out. Man, oh man, Christ in me. Look at that. The hope of glory is found in me. And man, I'm emphasizing the me. And we've got to get to where we say, no, 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 no. Humility means all the time, every time, every single day, every single moment, it is only God's love for me that makes me worth anything. And therefore, I need to remind myself and I need to remind my friends and neighbors and family that I'm not anything without Christ, that he is over me. You see, the Bible puts it this way, the way Oscar Wilde says every saint has a sinner and a sinner. I'm sorry, the difference between a saint and a sinner is that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. The Bible says, for all have sinned. Everybody say all. All. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. How are we justified? By his grace as a what? Gift. Everybody say gift. Gift. We just came out of Christmas. We understand the idea of a gift, that you cannot earn it. You can do nothing for it. And therefore, you don't get the gift and just say, hot dog, look how great I am. My kids, when they were opening presents, they, did, they didn't have a, a, a pounding of the chest moment. In fact, the greater the gift, the more in awe they were as us as parents for giving it to them. They didn't think more highly of themselves when they received the greater gift. No, they said, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed by the goodness of my parents. And so that great gift produces humility in the receiver. Not an arrogance. But I'm afraid that we get it twisted inside of the church. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption is done through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our redemption is not in our good favor or good curry before God. 
Our redemption is that we simply say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. I am the sinner. I am the sinner that is in need of your love. So what differentiates us? We begin by believing God this year for the salvation of friends and loved ones. We commit to living for Christ that we might become faithful witnesses of one who gives new life to the human soul. We don't put hope in politicians or money or popularity or, or to solve our problems. We look at the sinful and broken world and we're reminded every single day when we go out, every time you go to a grocery store or a restaurant, every time you go to work, everywhere you look, you're seeing saints and sinners. And the only difference between the two is the reception of God's grace. The sinner who says, God, I agree with you. That's it. That's it. And we have to have that humility when we go out into Baltimore. And we have to have the humility that says, you know what? I'm not better than you. I'm absolutely not better than you. In fact, I know my sin more than I know your sin. So therefore, I'm so preoccupied with thanking God for saving me from myself, I don't have a lot of time to dig into your life and try to accuse you and, and be a tool of Satan. Did you know that the great accuser is, is actually not Christ? Christ's role in the whole picture is to be the defense attorney. Christ's role in the whole picture is to say, listen, if any sinner would come to me in my name and would acknowledge their sin and believe that I died for them, that I'm ready to give them new life, if all sinners would do that, I will be the defense attorney right away. I'll stand in place. And the accuser is who? Satan, the enemy. But you know what most Christians start to do once you become codified inside of spiritual language? Do you know what role we take in the courtroom? We take on the accuser role. And we start saying, did you, look at you, look at you, look at you. Do you see? Here's all your brokenness. It's like, that's not my role. I'm to be a witness to the one who saves. And I refuse to be the person that lives my whole life saying, you know what? I'm going to do Satan's work and beat people up about who they are and what they've got wrong with them. What I'm going to do is do the inner work of walking with God and let God transform me from the inside out and remind me daily of my own brokenness. And in doing so, it gives me new humility for the day so that when I interact with people, I have a humility when I stand and I say, you know, this is the way of God. This is the way of the flesh. And I found a way to get off the off-ramp and follow the way of God instead of the things of the flesh. I'm not here to badger you. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to beat you down. I'm here to do what Jesus did, to speak of the kingdom, to speak of the opportunity, to speak of salvation through Christ. And yes, I believe every single person understands in their heart of hearts that they're not perfect. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to look over the next few weeks at the common thread of God redeeming great sinners 
Because what I want you to see is I want you to see the contrast to say, you know, if God can do that to the human, I know a lot of people that are not as messed up as that guy. I know a lot of people that are between what what I perceive to be good and uh, this guy. Today we're going to look at Saul. It says this in verse 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is what Christians were called in this time, any people belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here we find Paul in Acts chapter 9, and, and his, his operating as Saul. Saul, at this time, in Acts chapter 9, it says that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. That's who this guy is. We pick him up in Acts 9, but he's the same guy from Acts chapter 7 who oversaw the first execution of a Christian martyr, Stephen. And so here he is, still on his rampage, still going after trying to kill off Christians, still going, so much so that he said, you know what, I'm going to go get some more permission. I'm going to go get some permission so that I can get letters from the high priest to go after uh, the people over towards Damascus so that if I found anybody according to the way, I can bind them and bring them to Jerusalem. What kind of a guy is going out of his way to murder off? Christians, to round up, to capture. But this is what Saul was. I want you to know, we begin our life as sinners, and we will remain so until God intervenes. We begin our life as sinners, and we're going to remain so until God intervenes. It's so important that you and I understand that we're not a whole lot different from Saul. In fact, Saul thought that he was doing the right thing. Saul thought that he was doing the righteous thing. Saul thought that he was above and beyond. We learn so much of his story. We find out that he's he's a man of uh, many languages. He was a leader, obviously. But we find out that, that he was tenacious. And before he met Christ, he was just as tenacious. But I want you to see in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Can you say already? Already. It's not me that condemns anybody. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, you don't have goodness in you until you have God in you. And Saul was just doing his thing, thinking that he was doing the right thing, but he was really becoming a very, very, very evil man. And so when we think about the greatness of sinners in our world, I want you to ask yourself, what separates them from me? 
What separates them from Saul? What separates them is simply they're living according to the best that they can in the flesh, but they don't know God's love for them yet. But it's not that they need my help to condemn them. The scripture says that, that Jesus didn't come into the world to do the condemning. Well, does that mean they weren't condemned? No, it says that, that, that Jesus didn't need to do that because we stand condemned already. My friends, your, your family members, your loved ones, your neighbors, it's not that you need to get into their life and say, hey, let me condemn you. Let me make sure you understand. No, no, it, it's they're condemned already. That's where we're starting. And so it's the compassionate love of God. It's his grace renewing every day, his mercy renewing every morning. It's us understanding that, you know what? This is what we have. We stand condemned already. And so I don't get any joy. I should not get any joy out of pointing out the obvious that humans are condemned already and they need the grace and the love of God. But if I get joy out of that, if I get a tinge of pride out of that, if I get arrogance out of pointing out other people's flaws, it might be that I'm still condemned already. It might be that I'm considering myself higher than I ought to. No, it should be with compassion. If, if you know that a bridge is out and you stop at a checkpoint and you're having a discussion with somebody that's about to go and cross that bridge that you know is out ahead, if you get any pride at all, by saying, well, go ahead. Go ahead, keep living the way you want. Go ahead. If you get any pride in telling somebody to go ahead and fall off the bridge, like that speaks to you, not them. But in telling them that the bridge is out, you would say, man, I, I almost went off myself. I'm, I'm just here trying to rescue others because my, my car, I could have been there. But so I'm here waving and, and, and cajoling and encouraging and trying to get people to stop and turn around and don't go that way. Not because I'm better than you, but because I am you. And if somebody didn't wave their hands at me and turn me and point me in the right direction, I would have went off that bridge. And so when we, when we love our neighbor, when we point them to Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're not saying, I'm the saint, you're the sinner. What we're saying is, we're all sinners. And we all stand condemned. And I'm right there with you. I'm just here to tell you, the bridge is out. The path that you're on is out. And so my heart changes from one of authority and, and significance and I'm better. And I change my heart. My heart goes into a place to where I say, oh my goodness, the bridge is out. The path that you're on is wide, but it leads to destruction. There's a smaller path. Turn and take the off-ramp and go this way. You'll meet Jesus there. But many of us, unfortunately, inside the church start to get prideful about we didn't go off that cliff. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. I think I would too. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw what? 
nothing. So they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. An encounter with God. It's a little play on words here, but it's true. An encounter with God results in eye surgery. An encounter with God results in eye surgery. Now, obviously, the eyes here were, were the, to show a miracle. The obvious um, illustration or understanding is that, that God blinded him so that he wouldn't be uh, dependent on himself. But think about it for us. The eye surgery happens. When you meet Jesus, you and I, we all of a sudden realize that we're not all that. You see, before we meet Christ, we say, I'm significant. I'm smart. I'm strong. I can do it. I'm the God of my life. I make the decisions. Deuteronomy says it's even God who gives you the strength and the ability to create wealth. But I'm powerful. I'm self-sufficient. You see, at this time, Saul was essentially what you and I would call a terrorist. But he genuinely believed he was doing the world a favor. Look at the stuff that he was doing. It says in Acts 7, they all rushed at him, Stephen. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. This is who this guy was. After Stephen was martyred, he went door to door in Jerusalem. In Acts 8, it says Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. This is who God is saving in Acts chapter 9. After putting these people in prison, Saul learned about their Christian friends in Damascus, and he got letters from the prisoners. It says, he says in Acts 22, this is his words, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. I arrested both men and women, throwing them into prison, and also the high priests and the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and then I went there to bring these people as prisoners. I got letters from their friends so that I could go in and get access to these people. And then once I got access, I hauled them off to jail. That's how twisted this guy is. But yet you and I will see somebody addicted to a drug or an alcohol, and you and I will just write them off. And we'll go, you know what, God's, I'm tired, I've tried, God's not going to save them. How dare we? How dare we pronounce over a human soul? As long as there's breath in our lungs, our heartbeat should be to seek and to save the lost with a heart of compassion and a belief, a focused belief that God can do anything. And if he could save a wretch like Saul, he could save a wretch like fill in the blank. And the fill in the blank really should be, if he could save a wretch like Saul, he can save a wretch like me. And if he could save a wretch like me, he could save whoever I think is beyond his reach. I don't believe the problem is that the church has too much faith. I really believe the church has too little faith. That we don't have the faith to believe that God could save some people that we have deemed not worthy. It goes on in verse uh, 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, look, look at this. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who would call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. Everybody say go. What the Lord's saying to you and to me. It's Ananias. It was specific. It was particular. It was direct. It was go. Matthew 28, it's to all of us. Go, therefore. But the Lord said, go, for he's a chosen instrument. Look at what he, look at what he calls Saul. Up until this moment, Saul had done nothing for the kingdom. And everything contrary. If you look at his resume at that point, it would definitely not read instrument of God. But this is what God does. He's, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the king, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. Now remember, he's going to go talk to a guy that he knows could get him thrown in jail or killed. He's got a reputation for killing off Christians. But he's, he goes. So, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he called him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came to me, sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Look at this. Then he rose and started a class. Then he rose and he went to seminary. Then he rose and he proved himself to all the religious people. What does it say, church? Then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For jotting notes, every saint is no more than a sinner who is saved by God's grace. Every saint is no more than a sinner who is saved by God's grace. Saul had done nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing. To have earned the favor of being called an instrument of God. He had done nothing to earn the favor of being called brother. It was by God's grace. But I want you to know he would also suffer because not only here, but later, the, the, the disciples, they wouldn't even want anything to do with him at first. And, and so your reputation speaks of your, your past. Your salvation speaks to your future. And I want you to know something, just as an aside, you might be dealing with people that aren't willing still to accept you for the, the new person that God's made you to be. And, and you might feel like I still got a lot to prove to the people that knew me. But guess what? Your reputation speaks of your past. Your salvation speaks to your future. Don't rush people. They need time to meet the new you. And so if you're somebody in this room and you say, man, I know all my sin. I know what I've done. And I know people would never believe if I really gave my life to the Lord. I want you to know something. That happens to every single one of us. There are people that are on Facebook when I announced I was coming back to Baltimore and I had old friends creep up. 
And they, I started thinking about a song, but I won't sing it. And, and so I creep. So anyway, so I had old friends creep up, and they, they were like, hey, you're doing what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pastor a church. And they said, you? <laughs> you? I'm like, yeah, it's been a while. You haven't seen me. You don't really know me. But you? Okay, you're laying on thick now. Calm down. You got to give people time. And you know what? If you've been given grace, you got to learn how to give people grace too. You might have already been an instrument of pain, destruction, or evil in somebody else's life. But God still may call you to be a chosen instrument to carry his name. We all have a story of the flesh. Our salvation opens the door for the story in the spirit. And I pray that every day when you wake up, you'll start to say, yeah, I have a past, but I also have a future. For some days, it says, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. How long was he set on the shelf? What would we do today to a brand new believer? We would go get them education. We would make them prove themselves. We would say, no, 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 you need to do X, Y, Z before I decide whether or not you're even worthy to be baptized, let alone telling people about the goodness of God. But that's just not biblical. That's just not what God does. And so immediately it says, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all those who called on his name? And is he not come here for that purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you're jotting notes, the saint's testimony is most powerful when the talk matches the walk. When the talk matches the walk. People don't care what you know till they know that you care. And even though there were others on the outside that doubted this experience and doubted who he was and they were fearful to go and to encounter with him, it wasn't up to him to worry about the outsiders. It was up to him to, to, to receive Christ and preach Christ. He immediately was baptized. He immediately started to preach. And you know what? He didn't wait for certain people to check off boxes to say it was okay. But what he did do, it says, is that he grew. That he grew in this newfound faith, in this newfound understanding, that he grew. And as people are watching your life, the question that they have to ask, the question that they're going to ask, is are they growing to be more like Jesus? And can I be honest? Many of us, we have a tendency to grow just enough to fit into church culture, and then we put our Bibles down. And we have a tendency to not value continued study of Scripture, continued changing of our hearts, continued character development, so that we reflect more and more of Jesus. And I don't mean legalism, to where we begin to act like we're Pharisees towards others, what I mean is a complete and utter dependency on the Holy Spirit to change our lives so that the Lord might use us to change the world around us. But many of us, we do just enough to be accepted by our Christian friends, and then we put the book down. And we sit prayer in a corner. And we do very little personal development. 
And so, yes, you had an old life. But don't believe, hey, just because I'm in now and I know some words, I can just set all this down. No, no, no. Continue to grow. Continue to see how God's going to mold you and shape you to become the man or woman he designed you to be. Don't give up or give in. Look at the concern. Is this not a man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose? You're going to have this too in your life. People are going to say, I don't know. Is it, is it really going to stick? Are they really? Are they really, 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 really? But look what he did. He says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by what? Proving that Jesus was the Christ. As you grow in Christ, let evidence of Christ grow in you. As you grow in Christ, let evidence of Christ grow in you. How do you do that? Surrender to God's grace. Exhibit that same grace to other people. Understand that you and I are simply sinners. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're simply a sinner who's become a saint by the grace of God. And so don't ever get it twisted and start interacting with others as though you're here and they're anywhere. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 says, a mark of the Christ follower, is that you will consider other people above yourself. And you will take the low position. You will take a step back. You will let others get in front of you in line. You will be the one that will say, you know what? If there has to be somebody lower on this totem pole, I don't mind. I'm strong enough. My God is good enough. I'll take the back seat. And so you and I, we've got to get to a place where we say, you know what? Saints and sinners, it's not the perfect and the imperfect. We're all imperfect. It's those that have received his grace and his love and those that have yet to. But I want to position myself, and I pray that you will too, not as a person that views your role to go around and condemn the world. It's not your role. The world's already condemned. Why don't you mimic Jesus? Point to the kingdom. Tell everybody the bridge is out. The path that you're on here leads to destruction, but there's a new path that leads to hope and the life. Spend your time doing that. And if you've ever got a person in your life that you can think of right now that you have written off from the gospel of God, First step, confess your weak and feeble faith. Say, dear God, this person came to mind and I have written them off. And that's not fair. Because that person deserves your grace every bit as much as I do. And so I'm going to redouble my prayer life towards the people that need to hear the gospel. And I'm going to redouble my personal life so that my talk matches my walk. So when they look and say, what is it to be a Christian? They can say, that girl, that guy, that's what it looks like. They're filled with grace, and they're ready to love. The world needs more of that. Let's pray.